blogger for the website Psychology Today asked his social media followers the following question. Which 10 historical figures would you invite to dinner? He had 34 responses and counted up the votes. Here's what they said. The top vote getter was Albert Einstein. Now, it is beyond me to understand what anyone even imagines they would talk about with Albert Einstein. I have a PhD in astrophysics, and I assure you that I would be opting for the relatively safer ground of religion, politics, and sport. Not to mention the fact that Einstein's accent was notoriously unintelligible. Now, Charles Darwin sailed in on the Beagle in the number two slot. Uh, these two really are the quintessential intellectuals of the scientific revolution, so they're probably not surprising. Number three is more interesting, journalist, atheist, and iconoclast Christopher Hitchens. And then there's a three-way tie for fourth place, Jesus, Shakespeare, and Leonardo da Vinci. And then there's a four-way tie for seventh place, which also takes us happily to an even uh, top ten, Isaac Newton, Aristotle, Socrates, and Jane Austen. Now, Socrates is a particularly baffling choice to me, given that he was given the death sentence for, in effect, being annoying. Yes, so it was that bad. Uh, would you have Socrates to dinner? Well, who would be in your top ten? Who would be in your top three? Now, I think um, probably for for ma- for many of you, this um, you know you'd be tempted to put Jesus closer to the top of the list. Um, now, it certainly sounds pious for a Christian to say that. Anyway, um, he is the Son of God after all. Um, but now, whether or not you would have put Jesus at the top of your dinner list, we are going to dinner with Jesus today. Uh, and whether you are right now a follower of Jesus or simply curious to learn more about this man who so many around the world worship as God, let's pray uh, and ask that God would prepare us all to meet Jesus and prepare our hearts to respond in trust in obedience. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, being with us today, um, teaching us from your word, and we pray that as we hear it, you would give us soft hearts to understand what you have to say and to mold us into the likeness of your son, the Lord Jesus, to challenge us and change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, today Jesus is going to be eating dinner with Simon the Pharisee, and over the course of the meal, he has two conversations. Now, you'll find the account in your Bible at Luke chapter 7, that's verses 36 to 50. We've already had it read. It'll be handy to keep that open in front of you because we will be paying close attention to what's written there. So I'm assuming you've already got it open, so let's get moving. Now, this by this point in Luke's account of Jesus's life, Jesus is, is already fairly bruised and battered as a result of his public ministry. In fact, earlier in chapter 7, he's been battling it out uh, with opponents in the public square, and now, at verse 36, he's invited to dinner. And the question I think maybe Jesus even is asking is, is this going to be another battle uh, or a time of respite? 
Well, the scene at Simon's house is fairly simple. Simon and Jesus are the named attendees, and we discover later in verse 49, you can see it there, that there are other guests as well, though unnamed. The gathering is described uh, in verse 36 as reclining at the table, and that's a point I'll come back to um, in just a moment. Verse 37 introduces the second conversation partner for Jesus, the woman from the town. She was not invited to dinner. Uh, she's not described as reclining at the table. She hears that Jesus is there and simply comes. She turns up with an alabaster jar of ointment, though we soon discover it is not a gift for the host. The woman appears to, what, to be what we might call a notorious sinner. Someone well known for her lifestyle. Now, probably not running an international ring in blood diamonds, more likely prostitution and other sexual sin are the reasons for her reputation. Uh, what has driven her to her current circumstances, we're not told. But she turns up at Simon's house because she hears Jesus is there. She's there to see Jesus. She says nothing. The host says nothing. But she stands behind Jesus and begins to clean his feet. Now, let's take at this point a quick aside to describe the likely physical layout of the scene. And I, I can hear you asking even now, how does one stand behind Jesus at the table and clean his feet? Great question. So, Seating at formal Roman-era dinners was often lying down on what was called a triclinium, a U-shaped arrangement of couches. And the three sides, thus the prefix tri, allowed the servants to carry the food into the table from the, the fourth open side. And here's a cartoon of the way it worked. You can see that on the slide. Now, in the second image, you can see an actual house in Pompeii where the concrete base for the couch cushions, uh, is still intact. It's an impressive uh, little bit of archaeology there. But then the arrangement there, however, does not allow someone to stand uh, behind the people who are dining. Um, but this last image shows a reconstruction of the arrangement uh, in a more well-to-do house, uh, where the couches were not fixed and there was ample space behind the diners for someone to access their feet. Now, not that that was a common requirement necessarily, but be that as it may, you can see that this unnamed woman could indeed have access to Jesus' feet while the meal was ongoing. Okay, so that is the likely physical arrangement, uh, and this woman stands behind Jesus and begins to clean his feet. Well, what do the other guests think? We're, we're not told, uh, but how would, how would you feel? She wets Jesus' feet with her tears. She's sobbing. So there's another uncomfortable reality for the diners. Is she self-conscious at all? She wets his feet with her tears and then wipes his feet with her hair, with her hair. Ladies, did you arrange your hair this morning thinking you might be washing someone's feet with it later on? Well, at this point, she kisses his feet before anointing them with the ointment or perfume that she has brought. So job done. She doesn't seem to make any move to leave either. Are you feeling uncomfortable? Are you feeling embarrassed for her? That sort of internal cringe? 
What about her? Uninvited. Everyone in the room knows her reputation. Everyone in the room has an opinion on her being there. Every bit of social custom and manners and propriety is screaming that she should not be there, that she should not be doing what she is doing. And yet, there she is. She turns up anyway. She turns away from her own culture and customs. She turns away from the judgments of human beings. That's what she's done, isn't it? I mean, if you turned up uninvited to someone else's dinner party and washed the feet of one of the guests with your tears and hair, I'd say you had fairly conclusively given up on what other people think of you. She turns away from all that was familiar, even if it was ugly familiar. Instead, she turns toward Jesus. Why? What made Jesus so attractive, so irresistible, that she would set aside her entire life and culture to wash his feet with her tears and hair? What had Jesus done for her that she would choose him over everything else? And now, this isn't some sort of odd sexual encounter. This isn't even a romantic encounter. This isn't some kind of negotiation. She isn't buttering him up for some big ask, you know, later on. She never even opens her mouth. She doesn't say a word to Jesus or anyone else for that matter. No, this is an act of pure devotion, an act of worship. What had Jesus done for her? Would you give up everything for Jesus? Have you given up everything for Jesus? What has Jesus done for you that you might or have made that choice? Is this the kind of devotion, the kind of indifference to social custom and human judgment that is engendered by what Jesus has done for you? Well, let's keep going and we'll keep those questions in mind because we'll, we will see what Jesus has done and we can decide then how we might respond. We're not there yet though, so hang on. In fact, it's only at this point that the first conversation finally begins. I promised you two conversations and here's the first one. And strangely, it starts with Simon talking to himself, not talking to anyone out loud. Um, but let's read that again in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is, who is touching him. She's a sinner. Now, what I love about Simon's reaction here is that he doesn't seem to be phased at all by the woman herself, right? There's no comment on that. As if what she was doing was an everyday occurrence. You know, the kind of, you wouldn't believe the kind of thing that happens around here when I throw a dinner party, you know? Come around sometime and check it out. Um, seriously, is this a typical dinner party for Simon? <laughs> anyway, I, I, I love the scene. But no, um, for his part, Simon is concerned about the status of Jesus as a prophet. His motivation is not made clear here, but he comes to the somewhat indignant conclusion that Jesus is, in fact, not a prophet. 
A prophet would know what kind of woman this is. Jesus gives no indication that he does know. Therefore, Jesus is not a prophet. And now I think Simon feels like he's been sold a load of goods. He's been gypped. He's been ripped off. He invites Jesus in only to discover he's not so great after all. Waste of a good meal. And, you know, he may have even been taken in by some kind of charlatan. I mean, that's embarrassing. But that, of course, is not the end of the story. And Luke tells us in verse 40 that Jesus answered him. And there is irony. Do you see it? Jesus didn't launch into his own new story to liven up the dinner party. He replied to Simon. He responded to what was in Simon's heart, what he had never said out loud. Oh, Jesus is a prophet, all right. Simon was worried about the wrong heart. Simon was worried that Jesus couldn't see into the heart of the woman when Jesus was staring straight through Simon's heart the whole time. The woman's heart had already been fixed by the time she walked in the door. That's why she came. Simon still needed Jesus' help. Jesus doesn't mention that he knows what Simon is thinking, but for the record, when later Jesus is talking to Simon about the woman, what does he say? Verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Jesus has known all along who this woman is and what she's done and her reputation in town. Friends, please don't imagine that God doesn't know what's going on in your heart. You cannot hide your thoughts and desires from God. They are simply among the list of everything he knows about his world, like the number of hairs on your head or how the acorn grows into an oak tree. He just knows. There is no game or negotiation, no chance he might miss something or forget something. Jesus is a prophet, all right. He knows the woman's heart, and he knows Simon's heart, and he knows your heart also. And so he tells Simon a story. Let's have a look. Verses 41 and 42. I'll read that again. A creditor has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Story simple enough. Two people who can't pay their debts have their debts canceled. One owed more than the other. So Jesus asks Simon, which one would love the money lender more? Um, it's not a trick question, but you can see even then that Simon is a bit unsure how to respond. It's a, you know, I suppose the one he forgave more. Simon seems a bit nervous, but Jesus jumps in to cut the tension. You have judged correctly. Shoo, got it. <laughs> but that's not the end of what Jesus wants to say. Do you see this woman? He says as if Simon hadn't been thinking about the woman the whole time. Do you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house. That is, I'm your guest, Simon. You gave me no water for my feet, even though it would have been expected that the host servants at least would wash the feet of the guests on their arrival, because their feet would be completely disgusting (laughs) with dust and dung from the streets of the town. But she, with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, a customary greeting of the time. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, 
a common adornment that probably doubled as, as a bit of deodorant as well. But she has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. So things have gotten personal. We now know who represents whom in the story. Simon had the smaller debt, as it were, the woman had the bigger. Simon, in his lack of common hospitality, has loved little. The woman, despite her deserved reputation, being fully aware of her sin, turns her back on cultural expectations and human judgments in order to show her devotion to the one who has cancelled her debt. The point is that this woman made Jesus welcome at great personal cost, while Simon, the wealthy host, did not extend even the basic cultural courtesies to Jesus. Simon loved little. Does that mean he was forgiven little? And this is one of the big questions we are left with. Is it really possible for God to forgive only a little? Is there anyone who has only sinned a little? Is there anyone who has only rebelled a little? In fact, I think Luke suggests we are to see Simon in the same category as the woman. That is, I think the answer to the above questions is no. Just before the dinner, Jesus is responding to critics and and recounts of what people are saying about him in verses 33 and 34. And he makes the, and he's talking about, makes the point, I guess, that prophets don't get an easy job in, in Israel. Um, and he, and he says this in verse 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And I think the point for us is that immediately before the invitation from Simon, we are told that Jesus is known for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Well, Simon's definitely not a tax collector. So you can do the maths. I think we're meant to understand that just as Simon has judged this woman to be a sinner, so Luke has judged Simon to be a sinner. Simon has underestimated his sin. That is, neither Simon nor anyone else has ever needed just a little forgiveness from God. Though he won't admit it before God, Simon is equal with the woman in his need for forgiveness. Well, anyway, that's the end of the conversation with Simon. We don't hear again from him, and Jesus does not address him again. But Jesus does now turn to the woman. And so we have our second conversation. Jesus confirms directly to her, treating her as a person now, no longer as an, as an illustration, that her sins are indeed forgiven. I take it he is not forgiving her sins in that statement, but confirming what she already knows. That is, your sins are forgiven, as it were. Uh, the knowledge of which uh, well, without which she would not have, she would have had no reason to turn up to the dinner in the first place. That is, her sins were forgiven before she loved, as it were. Now, how has it happened? And Jesus tells her, he says, your faith has saved you. She has recognized that she is without hope on her own. She has no defense before God. She has provi- she has, God has provided a savior for her, Jesus Christ, and she has accepted him. She has trusted Jesus to do for her what she cannot do for herself. 
stand innocent at the judgment of God. She is relying or depending on what Jesus has done rather than on what she can do. That is what it means for her faith to have saved her. It means she is trusting Jesus to save her. And he has. The object of her trust is what makes it valuable, not the act of trusting something or being a trusting individual. She has put her trust in Jesus. Her faith in Jesus has saved her. That was a brief conversation, but it brings us to the end of the two conversations with Jesus. Simon and the woman, I think, highlight for us two possible pitfalls in understanding ourselves before God. So let's take a look at these two different sort of poles or ends of a spectrum. You might even say there are two kinds of people in the world. (laughs) There are those who underestimate their sin and those who overestimate their sin. If you're like me, leading an outwardly respectable life in the suburbs, valued member of my church community, uh, and someone who is not confronted daily with catastrophes that my sins have wrought in the lives of others, you are highly likely to be in that first category. That is, you are likely to underestimate your sin. In the story, you and I are more like Simon than the woman. Does that worry you? It worries me because I don't want to be like Simon. Does it worry you that Jesus is not embarrassed by the foot washing routine? It worries me. It worries me because I am embarrassed by the foot washing routine. Does it worry you that Jesus thinks washing his feet with hair and tears at the dinner table at someone else's dinner party is a fitting response to having had your sins forgiven by him? It worries me. And it worries me because my response is to think of reasons why it wouldn't make sense for me to do something like that. I don't know about you. I don't want to be like Simon thinking I've been forgiven little, when the only real options are either I've been forgiven much or I've been forgiven nothing at all. Do not underestimate your sin and end up unforgiven altogether on the last day. For people like us, at the underestimating end of the spectrum, the key point to take away from the story about the money lender is not the difference in the two debts owing, but the fact that neither person could pay. Every one of us, regardless of the length and severity of the list of our sins, is in a hopeless state. None of us can pay. None of us can behave our way out of the hole that we are in. Every one of us was playing for the wrong team before Jesus came to save us. It didn't matter whether we were good at soccer or bad at soccer. It didn't matter if we were nice to our teammates or mean to our teammates. What mattered was that our team was playing against God's team. Our whole orientation and attitude was opposed to God. The individual sins are virtually irrelevant compared to the fact that we were contracted to play against God. Comparing our sin with others is like 
comparing the, the size of the flea on the wing, on the fly, on the wart, on the frog, on the bump, on the log, in the hole, in the bottom of the sea, when we're already drowning in an ocean of rebellion against God. We have rebelled against our creator and king and set off to live our lives our own way without him. The actual deeds of life after that act of rebellion are just details. All of us need forgiveness for that act of rebellion against our rightful king. That is the the much for which we need forgiveness, right? That is the much for which everyone needs forgiveness. At our underestimating end of the spectrum, we need to spend more time remembering our sins, naming them and confessing them one by one to God. We need to spend more time repenting and making amends with others for the ways we have wronged them. But the great news is that because Jesus has died for all our sins and every individual sin, and because God knows the secrets of our hearts already, we have nothing to lose by opening up to God and to others about our struggles with sin. Jesus has died. We are forgiven. Jesus has risen to new life. We have an inheritance secured for us with God. Let us be less concerned for our reputations and more concerned that we honor Christ's sacrifice by acknowledging our sin. Our danger is thinking we've only been forgiven little. God knows our hearts. Let's stop pretending and instead work at putting to death the old self that still remains and cultivating a deep devotion for our Savior, just like the woman in this story. Now, at the other end of the spectrum is the danger of overestimating our sin. And some, and some of you are going to be more at that end. And for some, for some of us, the, the danger will be overestimating our sin. The woman in the story was a good example of someone who, when faced with a hopeless situation, cast herself on the mercy of God. She lived with the depth of her sin every day, but also came to realize that God's grace in Jesus was bigger than her sin. You might be someone like that woman before she came to her realization about Jesus. The sins of her life were piled on her back. Because of the nature of her sin, she lived with the consequences of it every day. There was no peace. There was no break for her. She was forced to drag her sin with her everywhere she went. She was ostracized from society, treated poorly, had a reputation that preceded her, and predisposed others to think ill of her, And who knows what kinds of tragedies in her early life had led her to where she was. No one wanted her. No one loved her. It would be easy for her to think she was beyond being loved. That no one could love her. You might be feeling that way right now yourself. Unloved and unlovable. You might feel that it's impossible that God would have anything to do with you. You might be feeling completely hopeless. But you know what? Strangely, if that's you, you are in a much better 
situation than Simon was in the story. This story is really great news for you. And there there are three things that you need to take away from this story. First of all, the first thing is it was the money lender who took the initiative to cancel the debt. The money lender knew that neither could pay. God is pursuing you and has already taken decisive action to bring hope to the hopeless. The woman could love Jesus. She was free to love Jesus because God had already loved her. And God has already demonstrated his love for you in sending his son to die for you on the cross. You are loved and you are lovable. Secondly, when the money lender canceled the debts, he canceled the debts in full. Regardless of the amounts, your past, your history, your sin, all the hopelessness of your situation, canceled. Thirdly, when the woman came to Jesus, she didn't need to do a bit of fixing herself up first to make herself a bit more respectable or acceptable. She didn't contribute anything to the forgiveness of her sins. Jesus says her faith saved her. All she did was trust that God, through Jesus, had done everything that needed to be done for her to be free from her sin and start a new life serving God. She received the gift prepared for her and given by God. A little while later, Jesus would go to be executed, to be hung on a cross, to die as a criminal. But Jesus was not a criminal. He was innocent of any crime. In fact, he was innocent of any sin at all. The only perfect human being to ever live, he was also the son of God. And when he died, he did not die to pay the penalty for his own sin and rejection of God because he had never rejected God. He died to pay the penalty for you and for me, for our rejection of God, for our rebellion against him, for the way we've treated those around us throughout our lives. And because our penalty has been paid by Jesus, God is free to offer forgiveness to all who trust in what Jesus has done in his death. So the danger of overestimating our sin is the danger of giving up without ever turning to God just to see if he's willing to have you. The danger of overestimating our sin is the danger of thinking we need to fix ourselves up first before we come to ask forgiveness from God. Well, there's our two poles, underestimating our sin, overestimating our sin. So we need to get it right. We don't underestimate our sin and so lack in our love for God and our understanding of the magnitude of what he's done for us. And we don't overestimate our sin and so give up in our hopeless state without ever discovering how much God has already loved the unlovable in Jesus Christ. The blessing of knowing just how much we have all been forgiven is that we will rightly cherish our Savior and give all of ourselves in devotion to him, just like the woman in the story. Jesus is not generally made welcome in our suburbs, is he? Our schools, our city, our workplaces, or indeed in the nations of the world. But we are his people, and we have been forgiven much. And whatever it means in detail for any one of us to love Jesus much, Through our devotion to him, we will seek to make him welcome where he isn't welcome. Will you give up the aspirations of your peers? Will you give up 
your reputation? Will you give up your advancement in your career? Will you turn away from your cultural norms? Will you break the rules of polite society? Will you turn your back on the judgments of human beings to make sure that Jesus is welcome in the world? We cannot serve two masters. And growing in our devotion to Jesus will mean loosening our attachments to the things of this world. Loving Jesus much will mean, at different times, leaving home and family, being ridiculed by friends, missing out on a promotion, losing our reputation, and standing up for his honor. Jesus has forgiven much, and so we love much. And we will always make sure his feet are well washed, his head anointed with oil, and he receives the greeting he deserves wherever we go. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have shown us your love for us in sending him to die on a cross, that we might be saved from our sin, that our slate could be washed clean, and we are free to love and to serve you with everything we have. We pray, Father, that we would not overestimate our sin and stay away from you. We pray that we would not underestimate our sin and not see the magnitude of what you have done for us. May we be people who always want and live and make decisions to make Jesus welcome in the world wherever we go. We pray this for his sake. Amen.